Evening guys, welcome to another Wednesday midweek study. Today we're going to be finishing off John chapter 7. Um, so before we go in, I'll just pray and then we'll do a quick recap. Father, I just praise you and I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to read through it, to study it. Uh, I thank you for the technology that enables us to be able to do this online. That uh, wherever we are in the world, we're able to listen in. Um, to study your word together. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak uh, through me and to each and every one of us, including myself tonight, that uh, your word would go out and uh, that you would bring understanding, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring encouragement. And uh, Father, I just praise you and I thank you that uh, as we go through this, that uh, you will speak to us and that you will uh, work and speak through your word tonight. Uh, I pray that you would uh, give me the words to say, that you stop me from saying things that you don't want me to say, and that your name will be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Cool. So last week, uh, we finished off in verse 44, where, to summarize what happened, basically, the crowd was divided over Jesus. Some were accepting him for something that he wasn't entirely, in saying that, oh yeah, he's just a prophet, or like, just a good moral teacher, which, yes, he is a prophet, but he is so much more than a prophet. And then some people were rejecting him for something that he's not as well. They were saying, oh, you know, it's just excuses because they didn't want to have the responsibility of believing in who he actually was because it meant that, you know, they'd have to make changes in their lives. But then there are those people who actually accepted him for who he truly was as the Messiah and they were blessed for it, but it required self-sacrifice. And it still does require self-sacrifice, which is fueled by a love for him. And uh, we're going off that into verse 45, where we'll be today, uh, through to the end of chapter 7, where it says, When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, Why didn't you bring him in? We've, we've never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. So... The temple guards would dispatch when Jesus was talking about being that rock in the wilderness, talking about if anyone wants water, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so the temple guards were dispatched, and then Jesus gives that little talk. And um, so these are temple guards that have been dispatched, and they've returned empty-handed. So in effect, they haven't done their job, because the Pharisees have been like, hey, go get him. And then... They're returning and they haven't got him. So, primarily, what's the reason why they didn't get him? It wasn't Jesus' time yet. That's the primary reason why. Because Jesus was knew that he could be faithful in just declaring the word and that when it was the Father's timing, that was the only time when he would actually be arrested. That was the only time when they would actually be able to get hold of him. And until that point, the Father would protect his son. And he would watch over him and make sure that until that appointed time, they couldn't get hold of him. So Jesus was faithful in the knowledge that he would have his father watching over him. And then these guards return empty-handed. They're temple guards, though, which means two things. One, they're good at their jobs. It's not like they'd be unable to arrest him. They had a reason for it. They came back, and instead of being like, oh, we tried, you know, he's just too slippery, he's too good, you know, he's like Bruce Lee. It's not like that. They returned and they said, we, we've never heard anyone speak like this. Which is also very 
powerful, considering the fact that the second reason is they, they're used to this sort of thing. They're used to people going up and talking. At, they're used to people claiming, hey, hey, I'm the Messiah, you know, and they get a little following and then it all, you know, patters out. Or all these different things where people come up and they be false teachers. They're used to people making wild statements, but they've never heard anyone claim quite the things Jesus did with everything else to boot. Everything else that Jesus was, who he was and his character, all the signs, all the wonders, all the miracles that he was performing. They're looking at this and they're like, look, we have never heard anyone speak like this guy. So they've heard everything else and then they've heard Jesus and they're saying, listen, you guys, there's something different about him. There's plenty of false teachers for them to be able to reference, but they can clearly say to the Pharisees, who would be another group of people who would have seen everyone else talking as well as Jesus and be able to compare, oh yeah, yeah, you remember that guy like five years ago when he was talking about that? Oh yeah, he's kind of similar to Jesus, but no, Jesus is, like, there's something different about what Jesus is saying. And it reminds us of Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29, which says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. And that's how he taught, very unlike the teachers of religious law. He showed himself to be more than a man. He was more than a prophet. His actions and his character matched his words. His authority in was in who he was, which is God himself, the author of the book that people are teaching from. It wasn't in credentials, it wasn't in leaning upon a higher authority, it was the fact that he was the authority that he is teaching as. That's how he was able to say all of these things, and that's what made him so different. The, the guards looked at him and they were like, hey, there's something different about him. Uh, we're not arresting him. This, this is something serious. He's talking about something very different from anyone else. Verse 47 says, Have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they're ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. The Pharisees' response to the testimony of the guards is to mock them. It's not saying, oh, what do you mean? It's simply, hey, you believe something different than us? We already feel like we don't like him. We don't want to hear anything else that you've got to say. They hold themselves in such high regard as intellectuals, as very wise men, that they disregard the testimony and the truth that the guards are saying. Their pride completely blinded them, as they didn't even want to know what the guards meant. They didn't ask, like, oh, what do you mean? What do you mean you've never heard anyone talk like him? Because in their hearts, they know no, we know we've never heard anyone talk like him. And we, do, we don't want him yet, because that means that it does away with us, you know? It's, they're not asking, how is he different? Because they know exactly how he is different. They know all the signs that make him the Messiah, and they're rejecting it. They don't want anything to do with it, because it requires a change in their hearts. It requires change in their lives. They're not willing to engage in the possibility of being wrong. That's pride in their lives. But we do the same thing, and when we do the same thing, that's pride in our lives too. It's not like it's one thing for them, one thing for, for us. Kind of like when we look at the Israelites 
in Exodus and we look at them and we're like, man, you guys again, you're doing this? But we do the same thing. And we see these things in scripture and we can say, hang on a minute. I, do, I can look at these guys and I can be like, man, you guys, seriously? When we do the same thing. But sometimes it's a little bit less obvious with ourselves. I remember I was watching a video of this Christian and this famous scientist and they were chatting to each other. It wasn't like a debate that wasn't the setup for it. Um, they were just having a conversation. They were going around somewhere. And the, the Christian had researched what the scientist had, uh, what the scientist believed. And he was asking, hey, why do you believe this? Like, what, what is there for that? And the scientist basically told him, look, you're ignorant. I don't care where you come from, what degrees you have, but you're ignorant because we have evidence to support this. And the Christian was like, okay, what, what evidence do you have? And after a little bit of a back and forth over what this evidence was, the scientist eventually basically just said that he, while he didn't really in fact have any evidence, his version was just a little bit more believable. And that's why it was true. And after which the Christian then pointed out, hey, um, like, you know, in different terms, he was like, hey, I don't actually believe what you think I believe. And here's the evidence why I believe what I believe, that he was actually able to do that. But it took a difference in saying, hey, you know what? I'm willing to say, I don't know all the answers and I want to know what you believe, why you believe that. It had the two stark contrasts where you have the pride that was in the scientist who was just saying he's smart and listen, you're ignorant, you don't know what you're talking about. But he wasn't even willing to go down to his level to say, hey, why do you believe this? Whereas the Christian guy was quite happily sat there saying, why do you believe this? I don't know why you believe this, so please tell me why. And the humility in the Christian actually accepted his ignorance and then he was smarter for it. Because not only does he accept, hey, I don't know everything, but he was willing to say, hey, what evidence is there? What evidence can I pull in to say, I want to find the truth? And that's what humility does. It leads to us getting the knowledge of the truth. It asks questions and then it finds answers in that. When you're humble enough to ask questions, you often end up finding the truth. When I speak to certain religious groups, I find that they're not allowed, or at least they're strongly discouraged, from asking questions or questioning certain things. I remember when I was in school, I would often talk to one of my friends who was a Muslim, and uh, he would talk to me about certain stuff, and he was like, oh no, I, I don't ask that, I'm not allowed to ask that. I was like, oh, okay, sure. But in my mind, I was just thinking, well, I, I'll ask questions because I want to know the truth. I want to find out all about these different things. And we're actively encouraged to question those things because that's how we gain knowledge of the truth. That's what happens when you're dealing with the truth. You ask those questions and you find those deeper truths. You find out those different things. You're not worried about finding something to disprove that because if you do, then great, well, you found out that what you believed wasn't the truth and you've actually now truly found the truth. So instead, you're less concerned with living in a comfortable lie and more so in just dealing with the truth of what reality is. But that's what the Pharisees were stuck in, this comfortable lie that they just wanted to stay in because that was what was comfortable. That was 
how life was more just livable for them. They didn't want to have this self-sacrifice. I was chatting to someone last week about the belief that uh, everybody goes to heaven, regardless. And uh, in our conversation, we were talking about how, yeah, sure, that can be a more comfortable belief, in that everybody can go to heaven regardless of whether you believe in Jesus or not. But the difference is, actually, we see that that's not the truth. John 14 verse 6 clearly tells us, John told him, which is speaking to Thomas, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It requires Christ's death upon the cross, because otherwise there is no justice. Because God, in his justice and in his love, sent down his son to die to pay that debt, so that then in accepting his sacrifice, we could say, okay, then now Christ's death is instead of you having to die. So you can actually go to heaven because now the father sees you as he sees his son, which is perfectly clean and righteous. And the wonderful thing about asking questions is you end up finding the truth. In John 8 verse 31 to 32, it says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of the Bible has stood the test of time. We can see throughout scripture, hey, there are all these different things that are said. And then over time, even in more recent history, we have these archeological discoveries that say, actually, this is supporting the truth of scripture. There's nothing that we found that's disproving scripture. In fact, everything that we're finding is proving scripture, even though so many people will say, oh, well, that's not true because we haven't found evidence. Maybe not yet, but clearly the record is showing evidence is being found to support these things. We would have originally thought, oh, well, we don't have any, any evidence for that. It's just a matter of yet. And it's clearly evidence when you go to the British Museum. You can see certain stuff like, uh, Abraham's place of birth. It was originally thought, oh, it, it doesn't even exist. It mentions this place that doesn't even exist. Then they find these things, they have these archeological discoveries and they can say, oh, we found this place, this, this place exists. And then you look at scripture and you say, yep, we know that place exists. Oh, okay, fair enough. And so we can see how scripture is continually time after time proven to be true. The Pharisees, allowed their pride to get in the way of the truth. Their pride blinded them to the fact of, hey, this could be a reality, this could be truth, but instead they didn't want anything to do with it. In fact, their pride blinded them to a point where they thought they could speak on behalf of God. They, instead of saying, hey, you know, what, what do you mean? They instead were turning around saying, hey, God's curse is on you. They didn't have a clue. Their pride fed itself on a knowledge about God, but they didn't have the knowledge of God. They were ignorant to the Messiah by simply missing facts, by ignoring facts. And then they dismissed the people as ignorant and foolish, which showed that they're completely missing the heart of God. They in fact even went further as to try and pronounce God's curse on these people, which clearly is missing the heart of God. So we have to be careful not to, al not to allow ourselves to be in a similar sort of situation to have ourselves in this fake uh, belief that we're somehow holy without Christ, because we're not. The reality is that we need Christ and we need his holiness because we are not good people.
we can often think that we're really good because, you know, we're doing a great job, we're doing these things, we're a good person. Or we're feeding our head and not our heart. When we read the word, instead of just simply reading it to read it, to get a thing done, or to read it for the knowledge that's in it, instead we want to ingest it, we want to meditate on it, we want to see how the Lord is speaking to us through his word. To allow for him to have that relationship through us, uh, with us, through his word. Just like a letter from one person who loves one person to another. When we pray to the Lord, are we simply saying words just to say them? Are we doing it, you know, some fanciful thing just because we're in front of other people, like in Ma like we see in Matthew 6? Or are we doing it for the sake of our relationship with the Lord? Having that time when we go away in private and we just pray because no one else is around. It doesn't matter that anyone else is around because it's the relationship between us and the Father. Allowing him to speak to us as well as speaking to him, bringing things before him. Pride will make itself a God to live for itself, whereas Christ calls us to put ourselves to death. As we see in Colossians 3 verse 3, for you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our old lives are dead and so we don't live for ourselves, we live for God. Verse 50 says, Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing? he asked. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Then the meeting broke up, and everybody went home. So, in this great contrast to the Pharisees, you have good old Nicodemus who's back, and we see him again after chapter 3, where we saw him before. But you notice three main differences between the pride of the Pharisees and the humility that Nicodemus has. One, Nicodemus is willing to meet Jesus. He's willing to investigate. As you see there, it's like Nicodemus who had met with Jesus. The Pharisees didn't care about meeting with Jesus. They didn't care about investigating the matter. Number two, he was willing to stand up for the truth, despite the opposition, despite knowing that that could cost him his reputation, and it likely would. He was still willing to stand up for the truth. Number three, he spoke in kindness and love to those who were his opposition, who he was trying to share the truth with, whereas they ridiculed those who were against them. And that's the, those, stark, those three main stark contrasts that you see here, where verse 50 Nicodemus met with Jesus. The others hadn't bothered to meet him. Nicodemus was willing to investigate, to accept that he had questions and he could be wrong in his original beliefs. That humility led to him knowing the truth. Nicodemus's humility revealed a willingness to investigate the truth, to accept that he was wrong, and that led to him then knowing the truth. And number two, Nicodemus was willing to stand up for the truth knowing that it would make him unpopular, knowing that the Pharisees would look at him and be like, hang on a minute, what are you talking about? Because he is this great teacher among them. They, they originally will look up to Nicodemus, but the moment they see that Nicodemus is standing up for someone that they don't agree with, they don't care all of a sudden about his reputation because now they want him to be taken down as well as Jesus. They don't really care much for that because as far as they're concerned, hang on a minute, now you're saying you're against us. And Nicodemus knew that but he was still willing to stand up for the truth because the truth is what mattered more. The Pharisees could see that the message of Jesus would make them unpopular, so they didn't want anything to do with it. They actively wanted to oppose it. Nicodemus's humility allowed him to accept that he 
It wasn't the most important. He knew that this might cost him his reputation, but he knew that God was more important than him. He knew that the reputation of Christ, of who Christ was, was worth standing up for. Nicodemus's humility led him to accept that he wasn't right at first. The Pharisees were so blinded by their pride that they actually misrepresented the truth after rejecting it. In verse 52, you see this ridiculous statement where they say, no prophets ever come from Galilee. Well, they are clearly delusional because there are two big, as well as some probably some other examples. Uh, two big examples are Jonah and Elijah, who were pretty big guys to them, especially Elijah. Jonah was from Gathhefer, as we see in 2 Kings 14, verse 25, which is in South Galilee. It's five miles from Nazareth. It's kind of like going from the Botanical Gardens in Birmingham to, like, the one stop in Perry Bar. It's not that much of a difference. It's that mu not that much of a distance. It's very close to where Jesus would have been born, where he was from. He is from Galilee, as well as Jonah. So clearly, they've already got one strike against them. And then you've got Elijah, who clearly, he was known as Elijah the Tishbite from 1 Kings 17 verse 1. That was in Gilead, which is in North Galilee. He's from Galilee as well. These Pharisees are denying the truth just to try and reject other truths. They are living in this made-up fantasy land just because they just don't like Jesus and they don't want anything to do with it. So they are making stuff up. And Nicodemus would have known, clearly, he would have known, what are you talking about, no one's from Galilee? He could have gone on this big tirade and told them, you guys, you guys are uneducated, you guys are... No, he doesn't do that. His humility led him to actually speak to them in kindness. Nicodemus' humility allowed his reputation to be called into question, because the truth of God's word was more valuable than what people thought of him. Nicodemus's humility allowed him to not only know the truth, but also then to declare the truth. And then in declaring the truth, he could declare it in kindness. That instead of saying, hey, you guys are ridiculous, you guys are talking about this, that no one's from Galilee, obviously we know, you know, he doesn't go on about that. We just see this calm statement of, then the meeting broke up. He doesn't need to have this big, fanciful, like, hey, I'm going to tear you guys down. He's just speaking to them in love. And that's the third thing that we see with Nicodemus's humility. The Pharisees attacked and lied and even used God as a sword to attack the people. But Nicodemus didn't. He spoke the truth in loving kindness, not declaring that they're wrong, but simply questioning without attacking them, saying, what about this? What do you think about this? Not directly opposing them, but leading them to the truth gently. He didn't elevate himself above them, but wanting to bring the knowledge of the truth in love so that they could grow because he cared about them. It's not like he suddenly hated them and he wanted, you know, he wanted to off them as they wanted to do with Jesus, but he actually wanted them to grow. He wanted them to come to an understanding of the truth. Nicodemus's humility allowed him to not only know the truth and to declare the truth, but also to live it out in love. And that's what we're called to as Christians. We must first have the humility to accept what's wrong in our lives, that the fact that we need Jesus, and not just when we originally come to Jesus, but every single day of our lives to accept that we need him in our lives. We need his help. We need his strength. We have to have the humility to live in a manner of self-sacrifice. 
accepting that we're not living for others, we're not living for ourselves or for our reputation, but for God instead. Willing to live for him at the expense of our reputation in that self-sacrifice that he called us to. Picking up our cross daily. Though we must have the humility to live the truth out, then having known the truth, being willing to declare the truth, but then to live that all out in the love that Christ calls us to. Not thinking highly of ourselves, but speaking and living the truth in love. Romans 12 verse 3 says, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. When we walk in pride, we look to ourselves, rejecting others and simply elevating ourselves up above people. And in that sort of a situation, we don't grow. We live this stagnant life where we don't allow anyone to actually input into our lives because we are our only source. And so we say, hey, I'm, I'm great. But then <clears throat> we're just like a statue that stands strong, but doesn't grow. It's not living. But when we walk in humility, we allow other people to feed into us. We allow the Lord, more importantly, to feed into us. That instead of being like a stagnant statue that doesn't grow, it doesn't do anything, we can be trees that actually bear fruit. We're actually willing to then investigate, to know the truth, to find out what that truth is. And then we accept when we're wrong. And then we share that truth. We don't elevate ourselves, but <clears throat> instead walk the truth out in love. Growing in the Lord as we then learn from him, allowing him to lead us and to guide us in that truth. And that finishes up John chapter 7. Matt will probably be up next week for chapter 8. Um, but in the meantime, let's pray. Father, I just praise you and I thank you for your words. I thank you that it is living and active. I thank you that you continue to speak to us, to lead us and to guide us through it. And uh, I pray that you would help us to walk in humility, that you continue to remind us when we're letting pride seep in, when we're letting pride to take root, that you'd help us to uproot that in our lives, that you'd help us to walk humbly uh, before our God as you call us to. I pray that you would uh, continue to remind us of your truths, that you would help us to walk in those uh, and to walk it out in love in our lives that we would bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you guys.